All right, welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and today um, we are going to be covering a debate that happened, um, I suppose, a few weeks ago, maybe a week ago, something like that, uh, between uh, David Pullman and um, Seth Bloomsburg. I think I've, I've got his name uh, correct there. Um, and of course, those who have been following uh, David Pullman's uh, stuff on YouTube, you'll notice that he has just rele released a around an hour long video uh, critiquing presuppositionalism. And so this particular episode uh, that we're going to be having today is not going to cover uh, his video, but his opening statement in various parts of the debate he had with Seth, which um, if you've watched his video kind of covers sort of the same things. And so we want to cover some points that I think are important to talk about. Um, this is not going to be exhaustive by any means, um, but definitely will be um, helpful um, in understanding where where we as presuppositionalists, myself and Dr. Bolt, uh, see where where David has, has uh, gone wrong in terms of um, properly critiquing and bringing up relevant relevant points. So we'll get into the details of that. Um, I do want to wait for more people to kind of jump in the room here. I'm sure we'll, we'll be having a lot of uh, folks uh, listening in. So super excited about that. If you're new to Revealed Apologetics, you just stumbled on this channel or you saw me kind of uh, flood the, the interwebs with a bunch of short videos. I think I released like six or seven of them in like three days or something like that. But you happen to see uh, one of my videos pop up. If you like the content, uh, subscribe. Um, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel. There is a Revealed Apologetics um, podcast. Uh, and also have a website and a blog, revealedapologetics.com. If you have any questions um, about presuppositional apologetics in particular, apologetics in general, um, or you would like me to interview someone uh, that perhaps I haven't thought of, uh, you can email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. All right. So uh, definitely looking forward for uh, having Dr. Chris Balt on in this episode. Um, I Definitely appreciate his his work and just the way he is able to explain uh, you know presuppositionalism very well. Um, he's definitely more uh, philosophically inclined than I am. Uh, I'm people say I am very well spoken, but don't get it twisted. Uh, I, I there is a lot that I do not know, and I have a lot to learn. And so I'm looking forward uh, to hearing what Dr. Bolt has to say. And I've appreciated what uh, David Pullman um, has had to say with respect to his um, his attempted. I'm going to say attempted because I don't think he's successful, but we'll see um, his attempted um, refutation of presuppositionalism. So with that said, let me invite uh, Dr. Bolt on, and I'm not going to call him Dr. Bolt for the rest of the night. I'm just going to call him Chris, but just to let you know, he's got a PhD <laughs> in plumbing. So <laughs> this, this topic is, is uh, hopefully, yeah. hopefully uh, your, your area of expertise is, is hopefully relevant to, uh, to what we're going to be talking about today. So. Um, all right. Well, Dr. Bolt, why don't you tell folks who you are very briefly and, uh, and then we'll jump right in. Yeah. Well, I have the cliche, uh, biography, I guess, right. Husband, father, uh, father, <laughs> four, uh, pastor, author, professor, uh, all of that fun stuff. And apparently internet apologist, because you guys keep trying to drag me out of retirement. So, uh, <laughs> here I am. <laughs> well, I'm glad we could, uh, draw you out of retirement. By the way, speaking of that, you, you haven't done a lot online in the past recent years, but when I, when I was finally able to successfully drag you out, um, you admitted, and I agree, the discussion that we had was probably one of the, the best discussions that we've had on the topic of presuppositionalism, transcendental arguments. Is that right? 
Well, the first one that I had with you where we're just bubbles and I'm not on the on the uh, screen, that was probably my favorite. Yeah. Favorite All right. Podcast I've done, so. Well, that is awesome. And it is truly an honor. And it was very helpful, by the way. The questions I, I was asking was actually coming from a, a genuine desire to know what your thoughts were. They weren't kind of preset. So I liked how it was very organic, but very in-depth. And so folks can definitely check that out. Um, all right. Well, uh, before we get into the specifics, I do want to tip my hat off to David Palman, who um, has great animosity uh, <laughs> towards the free. He's not a fan. He's not a fan of presuppositional apologetics. But uh, that said, um, what I do appreciate, and I'm sure um, Chris can appreciate this as well, is that um, in the end of the day, while we disagree with him, he has tried to do his homework and to properly represent the presuppositionalist uh, perspective um, so that he could uh, not, he, his desire was not to set up a straw man. And so for that, um, I appreciate. And and in his debate with Seth, um, he communicated with me uh, before that debate, just trying to make sure that he, he got things right. Um, and so I do appreciate that. But that said, uh, there is a disagreement at the end of the day. And so um, just looking forward for Chris to lightning bolt <laughs> the arguments and zap them out of existence. I don't know. That's a, that's it's very cheesy, but at any rate, okay. So um, the debate on gospel truth. Okay, uh, we are going to play uh, that debate here, and the proposition in the debate um, is: Let me put this on the screen. Is human reasoning autonomous? And of course, uh, Seth is going to take the negative. It is not autonomous. Um, and, um, this might jar folks who aren't interested are, are not into these discussions, but David Pullman, a Christian believes the Bible is arguing that human reasoning is autonomous. That actually sounds odd when we think in terms of who God is, who we are as derivative creatures and things like that. But let's, let's hear him out and uh, see where he's coming from. I do believe he is a Christian. He's a believer. Uh, he loves the Lord. Um, but this is an area where obviously we're, we're going to disagree. So I'm going to play and pause whenever Chris uh, sees fit to pause it, and then we'll we'll interact. Okay, how's that sound? All right. All right, let's go. Coming through good? Yes, sir. Coming through excellent. Let me know you're ready, and I'll start your time. Awesome. Uh, all right, yeah, I'll start now. All right, you got it. 15 minutes. All right, so uh, there is a debate among Christian apologists regarding the proper way in which they ought to best defend their faith. Among the competing options, the presuppositional method has proven to be the most controversial. Roughly, this method of apologetics seeks to argue that the very principles of rationality upon which all argumentation depends cannot themselves be explained or justified apart from the Christian worldview. There are many points of contention between presuppositionalists and evidentialists, but in this debate, we will zero in on what I see as our foundational difference, the autonomy of reason. I intend to defend the thesis that human reasoning is autonomous. It seems to me that denial of man's ability to reason autonomously is the key distinctive claim of presuppositionalism. If this idea is false, then the entire edifice of presuppositionalism collapses. Let me begin defining what I mean by autonomy. There are some very obvious senses in which human reasoning is not autonomous, so I must emphasize from the start that I am using the definition that presuppositionalists themselves use. For example, Greg Bonson defines it this way. By epistemological autonomy is meant the ability to attain to knowledge independent of God's revelation and existence. 
The person who rejects the word of God feels that he can find truth in his own powers of exploration, examination, and explanation. To reject revelational epistemology, then, is to commit yourself to the truth of autonomous epistemology. In short, then, I'm defending the proposition that human beings can attain knowledge without in any way depending upon special revelation from God. Now, this is not to say that we can gain all knowledge independently of God, because certainly there are some truths that God reveals to us, which we could not discover on our own. I only intend to defend an epistemological model, which is consistent with the proposition that all knowledge does not depend upon divine revelation or theistic presuppositions. In order to gain a clear understanding of what exactly a defense of autonomous human reasoning should look like, it will be beneficial to examine why exactly Bonson claims one must presuppose Christian theism. The crux of his argument is that without presupposing the truth of Christian, uh, or sorry, the truth of God's revelation, one cannot justify their belief in the so-called preconditions of intelligibility. Now, these are taken to be things that are necessary for one to have knowledge at all. And Bonson's favorite examples are the laws of logic and belief in the regularity of nature. Now, Bonson, uh, Bonson's argument here presents a serious challenge for my position, because uh, after all, other than abduction, we have only two forms of reasoning, deduction and induction. If our belief in deduction and induction is unjustified, then Bonson is quite correct when he says that autonomous uh, human reasoning is impossible. One could, of course, point out that Bonson is in the same boat. He must arbitrarily suppose that the revelation contained in scripture is true without independent justification. But this observation does nothing to salvage autonomous human reasoning. Thus, I see no way forward other than to argue that belief in deduction and induction are indeed justifiable. All right, I want to stop right there. But by the way, I'm I'm assuming that when you desire to stop, you're saying something. So uh, yeah, I didn't, yeah, that's okay. fine. Go ahead. Um, there is there is an error uh, that um, again, mm -hmm. perhaps assuming the inability or success of the transcendental argument, right? He says something to the effect that, well, you know, Bonson has to do the same thing. And what is that same thing? He has to arbitrarily assume. Uh, do you have anything to, say, to speak to that? Is that what Bonson is doing? Does he arbitrarily assume anything when he's presenting his, his presuppositional <laughs> transcendental argument? Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly don't think so. I don't know why, um, why we would think that. Um, I think that's probably going to come up more as he progresses and gets into the issue of circularity. Okay. Um, but as far as the autonomy issue, this debate was a little bit confusing to me um, because I, I know that the presuppositionalist offered it in the sense of a distinction between believer and unbeliever, uh, which seemed to me to grant part of the, the proposition of the debate. It was, it was odd in that sense. Mm -hmm. Um and then also with with um, David's presentation here, I think that he's probably right. I think that this is um, this is a good place maybe to focus in on uh, for the difference between the different methodologies in theory. Um, then again, you run into classical apologists, you run into evidentialists and others who will insist that they are not reasoning in an autonomous fashion, even as they use their methodologies and their uh, arguments and that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, there's a lot that we can that we can work through and work out here, even with regard to uh, something as simple as this issue of human autonomous reasoning or would be autonomous reasoning. I think another thing that came up in the debate, there was this uh, issue of ultimate and proximate. I know we didn't play this part, but sure. I was in the opening statement for the other side, I believe. 
Um, and, and the words were an ultimate and proximate uh, authority. I'm not really sure that, I don't know that Van Til even uses that language. He does use the language of ultimate and proximate starting points of knowledge. Right. Uh, so these are like epistemological starting points. So for example, in the Reformed tradition, you've got this uh, with the interpretation of scripture. Scripture is magisterial. So the divine revelation of God is magisterial. It is the ultimate authority. And then uh, your human reasoning is ministerial. So we're not denying human reasoning, right? So the presuppositionalist is going to extend that out even into like general revelation in a sense, or, or at least analogously. So uh, it's not as though the presuppositionalist is saying, no, we start from a God's eye view. Like we don't, right? <laughs> we're, we're finite. So we, we do, in a sense, start with ourselves as a proximate starting point of knowledge, the issue is where do we find the ultimate starting point of knowledge in terms of authority? And this comes down to, you know, that authority claim. It's going to be the authority claim of God versus the authority claim uh, of the individual human being. And so uh, as presuppositionalists, we certainly want to side uh, with God on that. Right. So yes. um, I think that that I think that does kind of boil the debate down to where we need it to be. So um, I don't know if David thought of this topic or not, but I think that's probably insightful uh, mm. to start at this point and talk about that. some. Uh, sure. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I found uh, objectionable or not. Uh, there are some things I'm going to bring out concerning uh, deduct. Well, one thing you mentioned was deduction and induction. OK, so, yes. Deductive logic is a type of reasoning and argumentation. Induction is a type of reasoning and argumentation. Now, there are others. Uh, I mean, there's abduction. There's inference to best explanation. There are debates about where those fall. I would, I think, classify those under induction, the ones that I just mentioned in addition to the two that he mentioned. Um, you know, there's also pragmatism, which I know, strictly speaking, is not an approach to knowledge. It's not an epistemic uh, sort of thing. And uh, but there's also transcendental uh, reasoning, which I think is distinct from deduction and induction, not that it jettisons them. Uh, it depends on what we're talking about when we're talking about transcendental uh, reasoning or justification. But I do think that that's distinct, at least insofar as we can draw distinctions between these different categories of, say, inference to best explanation or abduction and induction and that sort of thing. Sure. Uh, I, so. I do think it's important to recognize, too, th this comes up a lot. When we say, um, and I know R.C. Sproul has brought this up as well, um, it, it, a lot of people will be quick to point out that it really doesn't make sense to say that you must start with God. Um, and then they'll bring this out. I've, I've heard a friend of mine, Eric Hernandez, when he had um, an interaction with Saiten Bruggenkate, they brought this up. It's like, you don't just, you don't start with God. You must start with yourself. And many folks will bring this up as though this is something the presuppositionalists never considered. Oh, oh, wait a minute. That's right. I, I have to start with myself before I do all this. This isn't new. I mean, as you said, Van Til mentions it uh, extensively. Bonson addresses it extensively. So um, before people are quick to kind of say, ah, look at this, you have to start with yourself and not with God. That doesn't make sense. Um, you need to be familiar with the discussions here. Okay. You need to know the context of the broader, this broader, um, uh, this broader topic. There is background music going on in which a lot of these things are, are addressed. And so before people start waving the victory flag and, oh, look how quickly we've, you know, shown that, for example, the presuppositionalist confuses ontology and epistemology, you know, oh, no, we've never, you know, 
we've never considered that before. No, yes, we have. Um, so uh, it's important to kind of dig a little a little deeper there. But let's let's yeah, keep. Yeah, and playing. I will say too. I don't, I don't know if David was able to listen tonight or not, but we're not criticizing David with these uh, observations. We're just kind of setting, you know, sure. laying the groundwork here. That's so. right. That's right. All right. Let's continue. If this can be done successfully, then autonomy will be vindicated and the presuppositionalist argument will be defeated. However, before turning into the question of how we can justify these methods of reasoning, I'll need to lay down a stipulation and offer an account of non-inferential justification. The stipulation is circular reasoning and any form is principally incapable of justification. Now, Seth is going to want to argue that all reasoning is circular. I hope to show you that this is false, but even if it were true, let it be noted that even if circular reasoning is unavoidable, this does nothing to indicate that it can be justificatory. Like there's an implicit is off fallacy here when presuppositionalists try to argue that circular reasoning is okay just because everyone does it. It simply doesn't follow from the fact that because all reasoning is circular, that it therefore ought to be. All right. I want to stop there. I apologize for jumping the gun. I mean, it, I don't know if he says more on circularity or not, but that's a good spot. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is that what we're is that what we're doing when you when when someone reads a, a presuppositional author Bonds and Van Til, in context? Is that what we're really in even frame? Is that what we're really saying? Well, because everyone uh, engages in circular reasoning at that foundational level, it's unavoidable, and so therefore it's okay. Is is that really what we're saying, Chris? Uh, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, you know, I, I think when you had me on the show before I may, it was on somebody's show. I may have mentioned, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure frame gets this exactly right, particularly in the five views book on apologetics. Uh, it seems to me, if I remember correctly, that he offers an argument that does look to me to be logically circular. Uh, it's not something that I would offer, uh, in my apologetic argumentation that I'm aware of. Um, so I think what's happening here is perhaps a, a very narrow focus, and this is probably owing to the language of some presuppositionalists. I think it's a very narrow focus here on this issue of justification. And so if you're thinking about justification as an internalist uh, with regard to knowledge, so they're externalists, they're internalists, an internalist with regard to the issue of knowledge is thinking about knowledge as justified true belief. And so when we bring up this, uh, this key term here of justification, what the mind immediately jumps to is justification in an error sense, an internalistic sense. And what the presuppositionalist is saying is you cannot have justified true belief. Now, is the presuppositionalist saying that? Yes. But the presuppositionalist is saying more than that. Uh, the presuppositionalist is addressing this at the worldview level not just at the level of individual justifications for this or that fact or you know this or that belief or this or that knowledge claim and that sort of thing and i think that honestly i think that that's kind of where this debate kind of heads off in the wrong direction from the get-go mm -hmm. because um what well we'll get into that more when we get to to how he offers his own justification but no i don't think that we're offering circularity as a type of justification. We're not offering logical circularity in terms of an argument with premises and there's a circularity there in a fallacious sense, at mm -hmm. least not self-consciously. What presuppositionalists are referring to with circularity typically is a broad, uh, sometimes it's called virtuous. I'm not 
crazy about that. Van Til would convict me on that, but uh, it's a broad epistemic circularity. This is found all over the place. This is found outside of Van Til for sure. Uh, Thomas Morris talks about this. William Austin talks about this and and, and many, many others. Uh, just off the top of my head, A.C. Grayling, Grayling talks about this. So these are uh, reputable scholars in philosophy uh, who talk about this issue and say, yeah, we can't escape this epistemic circularity. There's a sense in which we can't escape it simply because of what we noted earlier. That's mm-hmm. that we are finite, right? And so we even just admitted, didn't we? We conceded that we start as the proximate starting points of knowledge, even though we're putting those beliefs or those knowledge claims up against that ultimate uh, starting point of knowledge, which is the authority of God uh, and divine revelation, right? Your, your podcast is called Revealed Apologetics. The one that I'm on with Brian Knapp is called Revelationary Apologetics. It's, faith, it's focused on revelation of God. You know, my new podcast is called Christ or Chaos because it's starting with the authority of Christ or you run off into chaos. Um, sure. But no, I don't think we're offering circularity as a justification in a narrow internalist approach to knowledge. We're simply pointing out that there is a circularity that people cannot escape. That's a problem for the rationalist, and that's a problem for the empiricist, and that's a problem for the pragmatist, because their systems do not, first of all, want to allow such circularity as something that they can accept, whereas in our system, we can say, no, we start with the frank acceptance of the word of God, the divine revelation of God, we start upon the frank acceptance of that in order then to have a philosophy that's consistent with itself. And in a philosophical system that's consistent with itself, you're always going to be coming back to those same points because it demonstrates an internal consistency. However, this is not a coherentism. This is not a coherentist worldview. We're not offering coherentism as a way to solve, for example, the infinite regress problem in epistemology. The last thing I want to say on that, and I'll, I'll give it back to you, uh, is, is that we're not even saying that everybody's circle is the same. If we're sure. claiming that we have consistency, we're denying that other people do. I think I spoke with you earlier about this at one point. Uh, the same thing with faith. You know, we talk about faith. Well, when we talk about faith in the Christian worldview and starting with the divine revelation of God, we have in mind a completely different concept than what we have in mind for, say, the unbeliever who uses some sort of leap of faith, you know, a blind faith, some existentialist yeah. project or something to that effect. Um, those people are not placing their faith in the divine revelation of God. They're simply having faith for faith's sake, which we believe is completely irrational and will not uh, give them knowledge or justification in these sorts sure. of things. What I, what I appreciate of the, of the fact that you placed that in context, when you, when you mentioned virtuous circularity and um, vicious circularity, and I would agree with you, I don't like that terminology, but you've quoted some, some philosophers that agree with that analysis. Maybe they wouldn't use that language, which goes to show, and it was one of the questions that I received from uh, I think it was an atheist who was in the comments. They were saying, you know, is is vicious and virtuous circularity just something presuppositionalists made up so that we could give an excuse uh, to say, hey, it's okay to be circular. And and no, again, as I said before, these concepts have a broader philosophical context. And if you're not aware of that, then yeah, you're going to say ignorant things like that. So the, the presuppositionalist is not some, you know, weirdo in the woods making up his own philosophy, you know, in a vacuum. Uh, there's a context to this, and I think it's important for folks to be familiar with that context. 
All right. Well, I mean, maybe yeah. maybe the presuppositionalist is the weirdo making the philosophy somewhere. <laughs> but, you know, a, a person like Cornelius Van Til or a person like Greg Bonson, I mean, they were they were philosophically trained at sure. the academic. I mean, they have reputable degrees. Greg Bonson studied under the same person as J.P. Moreland, you know, Dallas mm -hmm. Willard. Uh, at at uh, out in California for his PhD in philosophy. The same thing with uh, Cornelius Van Til, and and he studied under uh, I believe it's pronounced Jellema. Yeah, give me right. if I'm wrong on that. Yeah. Out at Calvin, which is the same person that Alvin Plantinga studied under. Now that was at the undergraduate level. Uh, Van Til went on to Princeton and all of that. Right. But uh, that's only to say these guys are not people just to sneeze at. You can't do that. You yeah. can't be dismissive in that way and say, well, they must be nuts and just making all of this up, you know, off the cuff. They actually were conversant with the philosophical literature of their times. That's why Van Til wrote using a lot of so-called idealist language. That's why Bonson wrote using the contemporary philosophy of his time. And so that doesn't mean they're right. I understand that. But they're not people just to be dismissed either, which, by the way, I'll, I'll give that to Paulman as well. You know, he mentions, hey, I, I have respect for Bonson. You know, I hate his method. Right. <laughs> like, but but I have respect for Bonson. And I understand that because there are plenty of people I have respect for who are great thinkers and, and even great defenders of the faith. Nevertheless, I would disagree with them. on things. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Let's continue. The motivation for those who defend circular reasoning seems to spring from an assumption that the only way a belief can be justified is by means of an argument. However, this assumption is simply wrong. If beliefs could only be justified through arguments, then this would lead to an infinite regress. Every premise of every argument would need an argument in support of it. And each premise of these supporting arguments would likewise need supporting arguments. And so on infinitely. Consequently, we need a working theory of premise acceptability. We need premises that have unmediated justification. Here we face the regress problem. Most of our beliefs are justified on the basis of other beliefs, and these beliefs on the basis of still others. But where does it end? I propose that classical foundationalism provides the best solution to this problem. According to foundationalism, all beliefs come in one of two types, inferential and non-inferential. Every justified inferential belief ultimately owes its justification to a justified non-inferential belief. These justified non-inferential beliefs are thought to be foundational because all other knowledge is built upon them. Clearly, if such beliefs exist and are justified, then they serve to terminate the regress. But how are these beliefs justified if not by other beliefs? I think the most promising account of non-inferential justification is the theory of direct acquaintance. Now, according to this theory, non-inferential justification consists of three distinct acquaintances. First, direct acquaintance with a thought that would be a truth bearer. Second, direct acquaintance with a fact that would be a truth maker. And third, direct acquaintance with the correspondence that obtains between the thought and the fact. The direct acquaintance with correspondence between truth bearer and truth maker ensures that the belief is justified and infallibly so. Thus, these three acquaintances taken in conjunction constitute a sufficient account of non-inferential justification. When everything that is constitutive of a thought's being true is immediately before consciousness, there is nothing more one could want or need to justify a belief. Direct acquaintance is not itself a belief, but it relates the subject to a fact in such a way that the subject is aware of the correspondence between his thought and the fact that makes it true. This is how beliefs can be justified immediately without appealing to further beliefs. All of that may seem a little complicated, but the basic idea is rather simple. Should I stop or keep going? Uh, I say let it play. Some other belief. 
you're simply directly acquainted with the fact of it. The same point extends to any experience. What you see, hear, feel, smell, or taste is all justified through your direct acquaintance with the relevant facts. So having set forth the working theory of non-inferential justification, let's turn to defend methods of inference. Let's begin with the laws of logic. Greg Bonson asks, what justification right, is the autonomous man for assuming the law? All right, so let's, let's address uh, that issue of direct acquaintance. Do you think his argument for direct acquaintance works uh, in terms of uh, the point he's trying to make with respect to um, holding a belief without justification. Is that what he was saying? Uh, so let's say that it works in theory, right? So let's okay. grant that for a moment. Um, okay. You know, what he's trying to do is stop the infinite regress problem. He's he's trying, I think, in another sense, to respond to the skeptic, to respond to mm -hmm. the skeptic of, of knowledge. Um, and so this is a fine way to do it, to say, no, we have non-inferential uh, non-inferentially justified beliefs. This is where everybody has to go in some sense. Can right? you say that again? So it's a non-inferential justified non-inferentially okay. justified beliefs. Okay. In other words, our beliefs at the foundation are not based upon other beliefs. They're not inferred from other beliefs. The question is, what do we base them upon? And this is where everybody has to go, right? So the classical foundationalist has to have something that they stop at. And uh, same thing with the, uh, you know, the reformed epistemologist is gonna stop somewhere uh, sure. in this, this hierarchy of knowledge, as it were. Same thing with the presuppositionalist. What the presuppositionalist is saying is, hey, we presuppose the Christian worldview, which by the way, again, <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to be like mean or something about it, but people talk about circularity. I, I mean, I offer lots of arguments that are perfectly linear uh, when I do apologetics and philosophy and thinking and these sorts of things, right? right. Um, the transcendental argument itself, I know that there are other people who would disagree with me and say that it's circular. There is a sense in which transcendental reasoning as a project may be circular, but I fail to see exactly how a transcendental argument, at least in principle, uh, is circular or has mm -hmm. to be circular. Uh, sure. There are ways to write these things out. There are ways to look at the formulation of them. There are ways uh, to just understand the basic transcendental direction of an argument, whether it's stated deductively or whatever. Um, and you can you can construe those in such a way that I don't see where they're circular, whether they're certainly not epistemically circular in that sense, because we're not talking about you know epistemic circularity. We're talking about uh, a, a logical argument. And so they're not logically circular either in principle, right? So um, there's there's that, that, uh, you know, we're, the circularity thing's great. And there are like lengthy, I think there's a, a thesis written about this from Westminster at some point, you know, dealing with Van Til's approach mm -hmm. to circularity. And they're saying, look, we, we have to have circularity. If you're trying to get out of circularity, you're trying to get out of Christian faith, that sort of thing. What we're saying there is simply this. We start based upon the frank acceptance of the Christian worldview. And it's not merely an epistemology that we're presupposing. It is a worldview, like in its fullness. <laughs> that sure. involves the metaphysical claims, that involves the epistemology, that involves the ethics, that involves all of it. And that's important because we need an internal consistency to that worldview, or else we don't believe that it is going to provide us with something like knowledge. There's yeah. something that Paulman said uh, at the very beginning 
uh, in his debate opening, he mentioned that he believes that there are certain types of knowledge that we do need special revelation for. If I understood him correctly, yeah. uh, I, I suppose he'd have in mind here something like, you know, salvific beliefs, soteriological beliefs, you know, how can we be saved? You have to hear Jesus, that sort of thing uh, from the word of God. Uh, but also, I think the Trinity uh, is usually the the main example here of something that we need the Bible to explicitly affirm for us in that way. You can't get to the Trinity uh, through natural theology. And uh, the issue then is if you have a worldview that's lacking in that special revelation, well, now you've got a worldview that can't. At some point, it cannot provide for knowledge. Oh, you may have knowledge of you know, a snowball or something, but that's not going to give you the knowledge that that completes that worldview and makes it mm -hmm. a consistent approach uh, to knowledge, as it were, and metaphysics and ethics and this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that that's important to point out, too. Um, so let's grant, let's say, OK, well, you've answered the skeptic in terms of this uh, rather subjective offer of direct acquaintance. OK, now what? Because we still have to justify deduction or we still have to justify induction or did I already say induction, deduction and induction. Mm -hmm. I, I'm trying to use his uh, uh, words here of justify and that sort of thing, which we'll get into that in a moment right. too, Lord willing. But well, well, um, well, real quick, real quick. Yeah. It, what if he were to respond? Well, fine. You, you say, you, you know, you've justified that belief, but now what? Well, isn't it isn't all that is required for him is to demonstrate that you do have he you could have non-inferential justified belief like even if it's something limited it proves that you don't need the christian worldview uh you know necessarily a revelation to actually acquire that specific item so couldn't he get pushed back there i mean if you grant him and right. say okay fine i'll give you that but then then now what well if you give him that isn't that or wouldn't that be giving him too much i mean how would you approach that i would say no Okay. Um, because I would say that in some sense, we could incorporate that into our own approach to this topic anyway. Mm -hmm. So presuppositionalists, you mentioned earlier, you said, is, is Bonson starting arbitrarily? Uh, no, because we believe that God has revealed himself to us. That's a Christian claim. Uh, mm -hmm. This has been the claim in the Reformed tradition, you know, for as far back as it goes. And so we're, we're receiving that testimony from God. Uh, we're believing that. Now, there comes a point in the debate, I believe, where, where David says, well, well, how do you know that? Well, we're presupposing it. That's the presupposition. Uh, again, people may accuse us of, oh, well, you're being circular. No, I'm not. I'm presupposing the Christian worldview. And people say, well, you can't do that. I say, well, I just did. Right? I mean, we presuppose the Christian worldview. That's our starting point. That's the whole point of the argument. You mean that you're just accepting all of Christianity on faith? Yes. Well, that's fideism. No, because if you can use faith at any point along the chain of reasoning, I don't see why you can't use it at the very beginning, at the very get-go. And in addition to that, I'm clearly using reasoning as I then set forth to defend the Christian worldview in terms of transcendental uh, reasoning and the transcendental clash of worldviews and this sort of thing. We're saying that if you don't presuppose the Christian worldview, then you wind up in futility. Now, to answer your question there, 
what about direct acquaintance as an answer to stave off the infinite regress problem and to respond to the skeptic? Aren't we granting too much if we say, well, that's fine that David Paulman did that? I would say no, because he still hasn't shown that this doesn't ultimately end up in futility. There's a lot more to justify here. But just given, say, uh, non-inferential beliefs and the, the subjective statement, I have non-inferential beliefs that are based upon uh, you know, direct acquaintances with things. Uh, I don't think that that's sufficient at all to support a worldview. I don't see where where we get that at, at all. Um, moreover, we do, as presuppositionalists, believe that we are acquainted with certain things, that God does give us uh, these various concepts and that sort of thing. We're created in the image of God. That must mean something, right, even with, with regard to our reasoning. And so uh, it's not as though that's necessarily in conflict with the presuppositionalist project. I think that that's a, a serious problem here is that we can actually go ahead and grant this. I'm not mm -hmm. going to, but we can grant this and it still doesn't demonstrate what we need it to demonstrate because the problems of autonomy are going to rise up elsewhere in that noetic mm -hmm. structure, in that epistemological uh, approach to things. Um, there was something else I was going to say there, but I forget. So take it away. <laughs> All right, let's, let's, let's move along then. Thank you for that. autonomous man to appeal to the law of non-contradiction in order to support his use of the law is to reason in a vicious circle. Now, how could any argument for the truth of logical laws not fall prey to vicious circularity, since all arguments inevitably depend on the validity of logical laws? Now, this is what's known in philosophy as the logocentric predicament. And it would be an understatement to say that the general attitude towards the logocentric predicament in contemporary philosophy is that there is no non-circular solution to this problem. For example, Michael Dummett says, it is of little use to argue for the possibility of justifying logical laws without circularity. And then uh, Robert Hanna goes even further, saying, the epistemic circularity of logic entails both that logic is inexplicable and unjustified. The circularity of logic is a vicious circularity. Or more starkly put, logic is groundless. However, I'm convinced that this is just not so. In the previous section, I introduced the idea that some beliefs are justified without mediation, <clears throat> but are known through direct acquaintance. It seems to me that this is also the solution to the logocentric predicament. My strategy here is known as metafoundationalism, and it depends on the related ideas of a priori knowledge and analyticity. A priori knowledge is knowledge gained apart from experience. Analytic a priori knowledge is understood to be a priori propositions that are true solely in virtue of the meanings of the terms involved. Now, a common example of an analytic proposition is the sentence, all bachelors are unmarried men. The sentence is true based on the meaning of the word bachelor. Now, this explains how an analytic sentence is true easily enough, but the key difficulty facing any theory of analyticity is not so much to explain how analytic propositions can be true, but rather to explain how exactly it is that an analytic proposition is justified. Uh, now, my proposal is that the justification lies in one's direct acquaintance with the relevant concepts. Analytic propositions are true in virtue of what they mean and justified by one's direct acquaintance with the relevant concepts. I propose that laws of logic are themselves analytic propositions and therefore justified uh, you know, immediately for anyone who is directly acquainted with them. So to summarize, uh, belief in the laws of logic can be justified a priori via analyticity because the justification is not mediated through arguments. 
A justification does not depend on an argument, and as such, the justification does not assume the laws of logic. Therefore, laws of logic can be justified in a non-circular way. Now, that is one way to justify belief in logic. Another method is uh, abductively. Earlier, I argued that for the thesis that uh, perceptions are immediately justified by virtue of one's direct acquaintance uh, with that which one perceives. It is possible, I think, to utilize oh, perceptions okay. in support of the truth of logical law. All right. Yeah. So I, I do remember what I wanted to say a moment ago. So on the issue <laughs> of direct acquaintance, um, I did do a podcast on revelationary apologetics. I've started a new one called Christ or Chaos. I encourage listeners go check that out because yes. that's where I go more in depth um, dealing with some of these issues or attempting to deal with some of these issues and providing some sure. pushback. Um, and Lord willing, I'll have another one of those up. I hope tomorrow on this okay. issue that we're discussing right here on deduction. So I'm and not going to go I highly that. recommend folks to check out your first video. It was, well, it was more of an audio, but it was, it was excellent. And he, you do go in much greater detail. So revelationary apologetics, definitely check it out. If you're able to multitask right now, go there right now and subscribe. Um, there's definitely, uh, it's new. So there's just a few, a few episodes there, but they're really good. You guys should definitely check that out, but go ahead. Yeah, please do. We, we talked about aliens last night live on there. <laughs> yes. Uh, nice. We had a big guest on Monday night and, uh, yeah, we've got eight or I think eight episodes plus my yeah. new one. Well, you had Dr. Uh, White on the other day as well. Yes. Yes. Nice. So, um, do, uh, do please go and like, and subscribe. But, uh, I was going to say that I'm not going to go as in depth on this as I would there, right? Because we're sure. trying to keep this simple. We're already at 40 minutes. So I want to keep this as simple as possible. Um, so, so yes, back to the issue of direct acquaintance though. Um, you do have the issue of what exactly is direct acquaintance. And that that's a serious problem in, in my mind, the way that I think about this. Am I feeding back? Or? No, you're fine. You sound, you sound great. Okay. Um, what was I going to say? Okay, so with with logic here, he keeps talking about justifying logic, and I like what Paulman does because if you notice, if you were paying attention, what he does is he he pulls out what Bonson's concern is, and then he digs his hole deeper. Right? He's like, here are these other philosophers who are saying the same thing as Bonson as far as the logocentric predicament, which is really cool. Like that's what philosophers do, so that's good. Sure. Um, kudos on that, right? So uh, presumably what he's going to do then is try to resolve that. So the way that he tries to resolve this is through this issue of direct acquaintance. He's going to say that we're non-inferentially justified. He's already said it um, because we are directly acquainted with the concepts that are involved in these analytic statements of, of logic and that sort of thing. I think there are a host of worries here. I really do. I think that the biggest worry is probably how someone discerns what exactly analyticity is um, okay. and where it applies and where it does not. Can so you briefly, can, I apologize. Can you briefly define analyticity for folks who have no clue what that means just very briefly? Yeah. So I think that's actually the problem is that it's very difficult. It's okay. analogous with direct, the issue of direct acquaintance. It's very difficult to define what exactly analytic statements or analyticity is. What okay. he's going to say it is, he just said it. He said that these things are, are true uh, in the nature of the case. They're, they're true in virtue of the meanings of the concepts or the meanings of 
the terms. Okay. I don't know exactly what he said. And so I'm not, I'm just something all, all bachelors are unmarried or something like that. I mean, uh, all bachelors. Correct. That's yes, the example he gave. So, right. so, uh, how did, how did he state that? Was it, was it all bachelors or was it all unmarried men? Which way did he state it? Some, something like that. But I mean, you could use, you can use an example where the, the statement is true in virtue of the words used there. So, right, 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 right. So the, the issue then becomes with something like that. So all bachelors are unmarried men. And the idea is this is true in virtue of the meaning of the terms. There's something I want to say here first. When we mix direct acquaintance with this issue of analyticity, it doesn't necessarily fix anything. It could actually further complicate things. Okay. So what I mean by that is when there are objections leveled against the issue of analyticity, they're still going to apply regardless of what we've said about non-inferential justification pertaining to the issue of direct acquaintance. Does that make sense? Maybe we have non-inferential beliefs. Maybe we have direct acquaintance with the concepts uh, that we find that constitute logic, okay? The problem is that if there are objections to the logical statements themselves or to the propositions in question, the, the laws of logic, analytic statements, if there are objections to those things in and of themselves, they still apply regardless of what we've said about the issue of direct acquaintance and non-inferential justification. The okay. issue of direct acquaintance and non-inferential justification is merely offered, again, to solve the infinite regress problem, to say, here's where we're starting as the autonomous human being, okay? Um, over on the other side, then, uh, we've got the issue of how in the world, then, are we going to justify, still using his language, justify logic. Now, to be fair, he's he's borrowing Bonson's language. Um, sure. I would point out that's a book that Bonson wrote early on that he never published. It was in his early 20s. He was learning philosophy. He was thinking through these things. Um, but I'm not trying to just write all that off. I mean, sure. he's free to respond to that. You mean uh, presuppositional apologetics stated and defended? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's just something to take into account is all I'm sure. getting at. Um, but um, so yeah, we still are going to have to look at the issues that are involved in something like analytic statements. So how do you discern an analytic statement? Well, he said they're, they're true in virtue of the meaning of the terms. Okay, so what we're saying here then is when we say all bachelors are unmarried males, we're saying that on each side of that equals sign, we have the same thing. We're saying the same thing twice. Bachelor, right. unmarried male. Which makes this tautological, right? It, it yeah. means that we're saying the same thing twice. Bachelor, unmarried, male. Now, you could say a bachelor is an unmarried male, and you're, you're using it, you're saying it in a, um, you're predicating of the bachelor that the bachelor is an unmarried male. That's not yeah. what we're saying. The is, and I know there are lots of jokes about this because of what some politicians have said in the past, but anyway, this is actually a real thing in philosophy. The is here is an is of identity, meaning that the bachelor is unmarried male. Okay. The problem then arises of we're, we're talking about synonyms. So is the way that we recognize, forget about whether or not there are such things as analytic statements. Do we recognize analytic statements in terms of synonyms? If something's a synonym, does that mean that it's analytic? 
Mm. And some people might say, well, no, it, it doesn't have anything to do with synonyms. It, we're saying that this is necessarily true because we're stating A equals A, that sort of thing. Okay. So now we're saying that analytic statements are necessary statements, but how do we recognize a necessary statement? Like the laws of logic, right? Which are necessary. How do we recognize a necessary statement? We say, well, it's their analytic statements. You know, how do we recognize synonyms? Are there analytic statements? How do we recognize analytic statements? Well, they're synonyms. How do we, you know, there, there's circularity involved here when it comes to being able to discern what exactly we're talking about with regard to these supposed analytic statements, with regard to this tool of analyticity. Now, again, Paulman wants to get around this by saying, well, we're not acquainted with those. We're directly acquainted with the concepts involved. This is why I mentioned a moment ago that the objections would still apply at this next layer, at the layer of the, the propositions, the statements, the truths, the laws of logic, and that sort of thing. And this is somewhere, I think this is probably Seth's strongest point in the Correct. debate during the crossfire, if I remember correctly. Seth really starts pressing him here. And there, there is some semantic squabble and there's some clarification. And that would be worthwhile to see, but we're not going to make it, I can see right now. But, um, but that is probably the best part of the debate in my mind is when they get into that issue with logic. Now, these are very difficult um, things with regard to that, but the big objection here, and then there's one more meta objection that please remind me to offer that after the next thing he's going to say. Okay. Uh, but the big objection here is when we're just saying the same thing twice like that, when we're just talking about these statements like this, how do we know that they actually pertain to the contingent realm? How do we know that they actually have anything to do with facts at all? I mean, if we're just mm -hmm. offering kind of these stipulative definitional truths, how do we know that they apply in the real world anyway? You know, if we can even recognize them in that sort of thing, because we believe in a world where we do see the laws of logic kind of at work, right? We can apply them to accomplish these different things, even when it gets into mathematics and that sort of thing. We won't talk about which is based on which, but um, they need to apply to the contingent realm as well. And that is brought up later in the debate. And if I remember correctly, Paulman kind of concedes the point. He's like, yeah, they don't, they're, they're distinct. Why, why does that matter? Which kind of, uh, if I'm wrong on that, someone can correct me by watching sure. the debate. But if I remember correctly, something to that effect was said. And that was, uh, that was a little bit confusing, but all bachelors are unmarried males. Even that I don't want to question, right? I mean, the Pope is not a bachelor. He's an unmarried male, but he's not a, not a bachelor. And so, you know, when we get into these things and the examples don't work, we might have a problem too. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's continue. Consider that any, pro uh, any perception that is given to me has certain properties. And among these are logical properties. Now, if I acquire a very large number of non-contradictory perceptions and acquire no perceptions that are exceptions, then I may justifiably infer that the best explanation for my uniform experience of non-contradictory facts is that there is a law of non-contradiction. Note also that this method allows that genuine contradictions may exist and can be discovered in the future. So it is falsifiable and therefore not certain. However, until this is done, the argument gives abductive justification for believing in laws of logic. Finally, let us okay, all that there. David Hume famously <laughs> argued that there is no justification for believing. Okay. Okay. So, unless I'm missing something, I do not see how this is not completely at odds with what he just said. Because traditionally, analytic truths 
are understood as those statements which are true in virtue of the meaning of the terms. They cannot be otherwise. And so if you're going to state that laws of logic um, submit to this measure of analyticity, then it is certainly not the case that we're ever going to find, for example, a true contradiction. If we come to know the, uh, the law of non-contradiction through concepts, constitutive concepts, with which we have direct acquaintance, and then we uh, have some proposition in terms of incomparability and that sort of thing based on these concepts, and then we're able to state the proposition or the, the law of logic, like the law of non-contradiction, and okay. see that it exhibits uh, analyticity. What that's telling us is this is certainly and necessarily true. It cannot fail to be true, right? So it should apply in every case, everywhere. Right. Now, someone might offer something like dialetheism, which posits that there are actual true contradictions out there. Something like the justification, so-called, that he just offered for logic along abductive or inductive type lines, um, something like that may allow for something like true contradictions uh, in the world or whatever. But my point here is that that simply contradicts what he just said. As far as I can tell, I don't understand how you offer uh, deductive and inductive justifications for logic at the same time. Now, either um, he is offering something that I've missed or, uh, and it's probably obvious and I'll look like a fool, but that's okay. That's what we do in philosophy. Um, or, or, He's just throwing these out That's why out I have you talking, so I don't look like a fool. <laughs> <laughs> He's throwing like these that. out here like, well, this is, um, you know, these are just different ways we might do it. Okay, yeah. but if they're inconsistent, if they're, you know, incompatible with one another, then then that's a, a difficulty. Sure. Um, or he could just really be in, in serious error here. You know, the other thing is I don't understand what it means to perceive laws of logic uh, mm -hmm. in the created order, you know, yeah. like go out and see a contradiction or something. I'm not sure what that means. You know, if you're looking at the apple and you're like, well, I guess that an apple is like an apple. I mean, they're the same. And so, uh, you know, uh, if I, if I have an apple and don't have an apple, I guess I, I don't, th this is very, very strange uh, to me in a way. I know that's not really an objection, but I'm not sure exactly <laughs> what he's trying to say there. Typically okay. we think about these things in terms of coming to our perceptions of reality with the laws of logic already in mind, as it mm. were, right? Okay. So we're not denying that there's a priori knowledge or that there's a posteriori knowledge and that sort of thing. Uh, we do have some, some problems with the categories, uh, strictly defined, philosophically, and all that sort of thing. But I think in the Christian worldview, there are things that we know apart from sense experience, and there are things that we know through sense experience. Uh, that's certainly clear in scripture and in a biblical epistemology. Uh, but before we jump into the problem of induction, what I do want to say is, is this, and this is what I was mentioning a moment ago with the, uh, the, the meta objection, as it were, the one that's kind of overarching all of these things. Okay. That was good. Yeah, when didn't we're have to talking, remind me. You, you remembered without me reminding you. When we're talking about the supposed justification for the laws of logic, um, that in and of itself is kind of strange because it, it's like, are we talking about justifying them logically speaking, like proving the laws of mm -hmm. logic or proving 
something like uh, an abductive, you know, an abductive offer of proof of the laws of logic. Um, if we're talking about proving them, then I don't think that Paulman is successful because I don't have access to his direct acquaintance with the concepts whereby these laws of logic are, are you know, defined and that sort of thing later up the epistemological road. Um, but apart from that, uh, you know, if we're talking about justifying them in the sense of an epistemological justification, like how do we know them, like justified true belief sort of thing, it's not enough in the presuppositionalist challenge to merely have that type of justification for the laws of logic. If you think about this in the grand scheme of things, with the way that Bonson presented what he said, he's talking about how can the unbeliever justify these laws of logic and all that. You know, he talks about the, the logocentric predicament. Presuppositionalists frequently appeal back to Aristotle's transcendental argument as a type of illustration of a transcendental argument. So, you know, Aristotle is saying, hey, if you affirm or deny the laws of logic, you actually have to affirm the laws of logic. Like even if you deny them, you have to affirm them, which proves them in a transcendental manner, that sort of yeah. thing. Now, David Paulman thinks that's a logically circular argument. And so it's fallacious. Okay. But think about this for a moment. If Paulman assumed that the presuppositionalist believes that that argument works in a narrow, in a narrow sense on a local scale, that's a transcendental argument that gives us some type of justification for logic, whether we're talking about uh, proof or epistemology or whatever. Um, if that gives us justification for believing in the laws of logic, if that argument actually works, you got to think about why doesn't this bother Bonson, right? Well, the reason it doesn't, the reason it doesn't bother me is because we do want to say that there are actual ways that we justify these various things and come to know these various things in terms of what looks like to us a very ordinary epistemology. We're simply saying that once we start calling into question the different particulars of this epistemological approach, when we start looking at the worldview in which these things can be the case, we run into difficulties on autonomous moorings that we don't run into into on the basis of the Christian worldview. In mm. other words, a person could justify the laws of logic in the case of the scheme that uh, Paulman has just presented here if they're successful, and I'm not granting that they are, uh, but if they're successful, we still have to ask something. Let's say it's a materialist. Then we say, okay, what's the nature of these laws of logic, right? And so we're starting from wherever we want to start. We're starting from wherever they want to start to say, what is this thing that you're you're grabbing hold of here? Let's say that it's your uh, your Aristotelian transcendental argument for the laws of logic. Okay, how does that make sense in your worldview? For one thing, how does it tie to other transcendental arguments? For another thing, how is the nature of logic consistent with the things that you want to say? about the world. So again, this is a worldview level apologetic. It's not merely focusing in upon something like classical foundationalism saying, hey, you guys can't get this to work. Um, that's not what we're saying. It's a much broader project than that. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so so you would say that David Paulman's arguments here are unsuccessful because he's too narrowly focused and not broad enough? Well, what I would say is we could grant the truth of what he's saying and still he hasn't shown anything with regard to uh, autonomous human reasoning working 
in a worldview sense, because there are lots of assumptions that are evolved, involved mm -hmm. even further down the line, right? Sure. Um, but I, I'm not granting that he's gotten this far, understand. There's an objection at every around every corner. Sure. But we could even if he's successful thus far, I don't think that he's offered anything uh, by way of a, a worldview that's consistent that provides for uh, knowledge. Now, that's a big fat blank check. I understand that. Sure. Uh, but we could get into those things if that sort of you know discussion were to ensue. So the question becomes then uh, much later down the line. And I know this is not the topic of the debate that we're listening to here. But yeah. the, the question becomes, what does this have to do with apologetics anyway, right? What does this have to do with a Christian apologetic? Uh, I think it has a lot to do with it in the sense of we're talking about epistemology, which is very important for the apologetic endeavor. But it's not that important when we're talking about, um, you know, some sort of narrow sense of justification and our answer to wild skeptical scenarios versus actually offering something for the unbeliever. I mean, think about it. What we have thus far is erected upon a subjective affirmation of something that David Paulman knows by direct acquaintance. So, And there's no way for us to know if he in fact knows that because he's just subjectively stating it. I don't have access to it. Right. But then how do he, and even if he has access to it, how would he know that others have access to it in the same way? That seems problematic as well. Especially if it's not, especially if it's not able to be described, you know. Yes, <laughs> that's interesting. All right, real quick, I just want to give a quick shout out to Super Chat folks. Thank you so much. Really appreciate Super Chats. Um, the Unapologetic Apologist, uh, $4.99. Thank you so much. I guess he's kind of uh, trolling here a little, but he's, he's a good guy. Uh, Presupper is just suppressed <laughs> the truth of naturalistic pantheism and Bronze Age goat herder fairy tales. Those are my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that's a good one. And perhaps later on, we could, we could return to this uh, question. Uh, $10 uh, super chat by JD Freeze. He says, my understanding is that strong precept holds that the exact Christian <laughs> worldview is a precondition of intelligibility. Does this imply one must have perfect theology in order to have intelligibility? We don't have to answer that at this very moment, but perhaps we could address that towards the end. Uh, you know, those are the only two questions I, I see in the comments. So perhaps we can um, answer that towards the end. But thank you so much for the super chat, guys. Greatly appreciate it. All right. Um, did you have something else you wanted to say, or do you want me to continue on in on the video? Well, I was going to say I, I would like to think my theology is perfect, but I just I highly doubt that it is. So <laughs> okay, sounds good. <laughs> Oh, oh man. A MJ Jackson, $5 team frame, EJ Carnell, all the way fellas. <laughs> I appreciate $5, but sorry, no team frame. I apologize. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, all right. Let's, uh, let's continue. Okay. In the future will be like the past. To argue that the sun will rise tomorrow because it is risen every other day assumes that there is regularity in nature. But why should this be assumed? One cannot justify this belief by appealing to the past on pain of circularity, for this assumes the very thing one is attempting to prove. So, Bonsons, what right have we to uh, read the future into the past? The universal uniformity of nature cannot be verified from the experience of the independent thinker in any final sense, since that principle exceeds the bounds of his experience. So the most fundamental premise of all autonomous science, the uniformity of nature, is neither empirically nor rationally justifiable. 
The problem to the, uh, sorry, rather the solution to the problem of induction is found in the direct inference or the proportional syllogism, a non-deductive inference form. Direct inferences follow the same structure as traditional deductive syllogisms, however, they differ in that the, the crucial premise is proportionate to the given frequency of some property within a reasonably large sample of, uh, of the population. Now, although the conclusion of a direct inference follows with assurance, because the syllogism is inherently statistical, the conclusion is only probabilistic. But how are we to justify our belief in the crucial premise of a direct inference? This can be done through a combination of Bernoulli's theorem and a second direct inference. Now, according to Bernoulli's theorem, most large samples differ only a little from the populations from which they are drawn. And with this theorem and a second direct inference, we can construct an argument which will rationally extend our knowledge to the unsampled members of a population. Once again, such an inference is only, pro uh, only probabilistic. However, since this method does not assume that the unsampled members of a population will be like the sampled members, it avoids circularity while giving us rational justification for extending our knowledge beyond our own experience. And so we have a cogent response to Hume's problem of induction. We do not have to presuppose the uniformity of nature. Before we're closing, uh, I missed if I did not briefly explain how God's revelation does fit into an evidence. Okay. Um, so I don't want to go into this a whole lot because I want to give this argument, uh, a fair hearing sure. and, uh, it's been a while and, uh, I've not had time to look at this in depth. So he's working off Donald Williams here, which I am conversant with some of this. Uh, so there was Donald Williams and then there was a response by Mark Lang. Uh, I've worked a lot with Mark Lang's material, uh, actually in, in my book. Um, and, and then later on down the road, of course, is Timothy McGrew. And Timothy McGrew is not just someone you take on in the middle of a podcast like this when it's <laughs> late and I'm tired. Um, so, so I want to give the argument a, a fair hearing and response. Some things that I want to point out, though, just by way, of, just to kind of preface uh, how we might begin to think about something like that. First of all, again, even if we're granting uh, in a mechanistic sense, some of the things that Paulman is saying, it still doesn't show us how these things are connected to one another, like how logic, deductive logic, hooks up with inductive logic, how these both correspond back to uh, this issue of direct acquaintance um, and all that sort of thing. And then broadening the scope of it, it doesn't show us how we're going to get to other claims about the world and that sort of thing. Even this sort of response to the problem of induction might unnecessarily uh, and insufficiently uh, narrow what it is that we can know through induction in order to find our place in the world as it were. Um, again, also, we might submit something like, well, you know, we do come to the world with uh, these concepts already in mind in terms of logic, and we come to the world uh, in terms of something like a principle of the uniformity of nature or the principle of induction, the inductive principle, whatever that might look like, uh, the assumption that the future will resemble the past uh, or, or something to that effect, right? So that's just something that God has hardwired into us. He's created us in such a way that we're at home in the world. The world operates according to these laws of nature and that sort of thing. And it all fits together happy and, and that sort of thing. And hey, maybe what David Paulman and, and Donald Williams and Timothy McGrew and these guys are pointing out is in fact something that shows us this is what the creator has done. And so this is the way that these things work. So again, at the end of the day, even when you get deduction, even when you get induction, you still have to ask the question, 
How is this consistent, though, with my overarching worldview? Again, we're looking at this as though this is an autonomous human reasoner. We're, we're looking at this as though this is the atheist, the naturalist, the materialist, whoever saying these sorts of things. Now, again, you can get so far without maybe addressing the question of naturalism versus you know, whatever else. But at some point, these questions are going to have to be pressed and brought up and that sort of thing. So that's one thing to talk about that, you know, okay. we already mentioned is even granting some of these, I don't think it gets us where we need to go anyway, in order to prove that, in fact, this is autonomous human reasoning that's successful. Okay, that's a big fat blank check. Again, uh, I concede that I'm just setting things up at 30,000 feet. Um, the other issue then is uh, that Anytime we're, we're talking about uh, induction, a lot of times, and I'm not saying that this is what these gentlemen are doing, um, but a lot of times people think that offering a probabilistic argument is an answer mm. to the problem of induction. That's not an answer to the problem of induction, uh, not at all. Uh, Bertrand Russell certainly saw this, David Hume saw this. So the idea is something like, okay, well, induction is not deduction, and we know that. And so by drawing inductive inferences, we have an inductive inference, and there we go, or something to that effect. Or, uh, you know, well, we're not saying that there's absolute deductive certainty. What we're saying is that there's probabilistic uh, knowledge here. There, there's a probabilistic claim that we're making on the basis of these premises that hang together. We're, we're making these general uh, these singular and general predictive inferences uh, through, you know, the items of experience and this sort of thing. Um, and so the idea is, well, we're not saying for sure, for certain that the sun will come up tomorrow, but we're saying it's probably true and this solves Hume's problem. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Even Hume saw this. Um, it doesn't because even probabilistic arguments and conclusions are assuming something like, the principle of uniformity of nature or or that nature is regular or something to that effect. You don't get probabilism apart from some type of regularities and predictability. You see yeah. that? Uh, so we're still looking for a way to, to justify that. Um, sure. Bayesian approaches in terms of Bayesian probability, uh, these are generally, they're used a lot but they're generally dismissed in a strong philosophical sense for answering the skeptical worry because they are subjective in nature. Um, even when it comes to the more sophisticated approach that Paulman's taking, I believe, based on McGrew, um, there's still this type of uh, presumption that, you know, it's say 50% that the sun will come up, 50% it won't or whatever. When we're looking at the, uh, you know, the, the sample size that we have, uh, we're not saying, you know, that this or that's going to happen, although we know that one or the other is. There's a there's an epistemological problem here that takes priority over the actual draw uh, that takes place. This is really hard to articulate. It's fairly nuanced. So this is Mark Lang's objection, uh, if I'm not mistaken, to uh, some of the things that happened. John Foster, I believe, brings this up in one of his books. As far he talks about a penny and a penny machine, and if it drops the penny, you know which side it lands up on. I can't remember if it's a penny or another coin, but anyway, the idea is that to to claim it's it's kind of a fifty-fifty is really disingenuous in a sense because we know that there's still going to be something that influences things in such a way that it's more probable that we draw one than the other. And then we still have to justify why that would be the case. 
the other thing is then moving from a smaller sample size, let's say, to a larger sample size. And again, I don't think that that's exactly what's happening in this instance. But when we're moving from a small sample size to a larger sample size, you know, the issue of sample size is very important in science. Um, that still does not mean that the sample size we pick is going to be representative of the larger sample size without assuming something like uh, the regularity in nature and that sort of thing. Uh, I think that the statistical analysis of this actually does move toward fixing that problem. That's why I'm saying I'm not answering this in full tonight. Sure. Um, the other issue, though, is simply that even if we do have something that's set in that way with the type of theorem that we apply, with the type of statistical analysis that we run and this sort of thing, there's nothing to guarantee that those conditions have not changed since we, in fact, ran that test. And then we're right back into the problem of induction all over again, because we don't have a basis whereupon we um, can can assume that that nature is regular and that sort of thing. Here again, even if we get to the epistemological answer, we're going to drive home the point that metaphysics and epistemology, we don't conflate them, but they are related. We don't completely separate them from one another either. We're talking at the worldview level. And so right. we have to ask, is the metaphysic that's involved in whatever this justification or view is, is that metaphysic then consistent with uh, this epistemology that we've offered in terms of a justification for induction? Uh, so that's going to take us into the issue of the laws of nature and what is the nature of those laws mm -hmm. of nature. And that's a big problem uh, for other views outside of Christianity. Sure. All right. Very good. Um, you want, want me to continue? Yeah, uh, we can. If you want, we can just try to finish this opener and take any questions we might have. And, sure. you know, however you want to do. All right. Sounds good. Potentialist epistemology. Contrary to many popular characterizations of evidentialism, evidentialists do not hold that knowledge cannot be gained through revelation. We simply acknowledge that one's belief in revelation as a source of knowledge must be justified by means of evidence. As John DePoe says, authorities play a valuable epistemic role because they are avenues for justified beliefs and knowledge that are inaccessible to us without them. Or they make the procurement of such epistemic goods more convenient. Importantly, however, for me to embrace an authority justifiably, I must have good reasons to trust the source as an authority in the domains where I regard it as an authority. So in conclusion, I strongly urge Christians to move away from the presuppositionalist method of argumentation. It may sound sophisticated. It may even seem irrefutable due to the fact that most atheists lack the philosophical training necessary to identify the flaws in it. I think uh, uh, the paradigm case of that would be Greg Bonson's debate with um, Stein, because Stein was obviously not prepared uh, for anything that uh, Bonson was bringing up. And so that gives uh, a false sense of confidence to many presuppositionalists because they think, oh, well, I argue like this, I can stump any atheist. Well, no, it's just that Stein didn't know the answers to the questions that Bonson was raising. That doesn't mean answers don't exist. So I believe that presuppositionalism thrives for the most part due to philosophical ignorance. I get that there are exceptions. There are crazy smart guys like Chris Bull and James Anderson and Greg Welty who hold, you know, to a form of presuppositionalism. But most people out there who are just holding to it, uh, they don't know the philosophy. They don't, they're not familiar with these kinds of responses. And uh, so I think that, you know, that's the main reason why it gets popular. Uh, but it's just simply not true that only by presupposing Christianity can one justify their belief in the so-called preconditions of intelligibility. This can and should be done autonomously. Okay. All right. Thank you. 
So there, you, so there you so, have it. There Philo- were two things philosoph- there that I wanted. Philosophical ignorance. That's <laughs> there are two things there. that I want to pull out. Um, <laughs> three things actually. So the philosophical ignorance claim. I don't think he was making this claim, but we're not offering something like a God of the gaps argument. Sure. Uh, we're saying here is this worldview. Which, by the way, it's not just that we think that our worldview provides the preconditions of intelligibility. We believe that our worldview is the precondition of intelligibility. Mm. Um, I think we could say both. But anyway, um, this makes me more of a purist Fantillion, I guess, at the end of the day. But anyway, um, you know, if we're talking about philosophical ignorance in the sense of, well, we don't have these answers to these questions. And so we're going to kind of fill them in with God. That's not what we're doing. We're reasoning upon the basis of God, and we're saying if you deny that, if you reject that, then you you wind up in philosophical ignorance. You wind up in philosophical difficulties, contradictions, and an inability to predicate anything, right, to know anything, to find your way around in the world, and so on and so forth, on down the line. Um, so, so there's that. I don't think that's what he was saying, but I did want to kind of sure. bring that out. Um, another thing I wanted to bring out, he quoted... Uh, is it Depoe there or someone, but about evidentialism. And you notice that he was talking about the issue of authority. Well, what authority is, is David telling us to start with? He's telling us to start with the authority of the self, right? Uh, the subjective knower. But again, I don't see where we've gotten anything out of that, really. Uh, we certainly have a lot of questions along the lines, if not an outright refutation of sorts. Um, but uh you know, even granting that, how in the world would you set about to prove the authority of God, the authority of the word of God by presupposing at the very beginning, at the get-go, that you are the authority, right? right. Uh, it's as C.S. Lewis talks about, you know, who's in the dock? You know, is God in the dock? Are we in the dock? You know, is, is God right. on and, the- and I think I think an important point too is, I mean, it, it's, we haven't touched this, but I mean, not only is his position philosophically problematic, I mean, it's just blatantly unbiblical. And, and I don't mean that. And I'm not saying that from kind of a, a moral high. I know a lot of people when, when a presuppositionalist says we hold to presuppositionalism because it's biblical, you know, don't put God, on, you know, in the dock. A lot, a lot of the criticisms is, oh, well, you know, presuppositionalists and Calvinists too, you know, they, they want to come off as they're very pious and, well, well, no, I, I think we should be pious in our epistemology, but it's not simply piety. There's right. also a philosophical, a theological foundation for it. But our our foundation should honor the authority of God. When when yeah. when, you, when you hear someone saying, "I'm going to argue for autonomous reasoning as a Christian," I, I don't I don't see how you read Scripture and come to that conclusion. And and some people might say, well, 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 come on, Eli. I mean, when, when you see script, uh, various scriptures like, um, you know, in his light, we see light. You know, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The, be- the, the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. You don't really think that's dealing with justification of knowledge. It's a, well, obviously, no, that's not the intent of the authors there. But surely they give us principles that apply, right? They apply to those areas of where our, in- where our intellectual uh, tools should be standing upon. Is it, is it the elementary principles of the world or is it upon the rock of Christ? And surely the rock of Christ, surely the revelation of scripture is not one that encourages us to be autonomous. I just, it, it, uh, I'm sorry. There's a little, little frustration. I mean, I think, I think that's a theological objection. I think that's an ethical objection. I think that's sound. 
Um, and again, that does, that did, I'll be honest, it bothered me a little bit at one point in the debate when, when David was pressing Seth and saying, well, why should I believe God? And I'm thinking, I mean, I, I get it in a hypothetical and a philosophical sense, but I'm not yeah. sure that that's what he was saying at that point. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that we're in a bad place if we get to that. Uh, but I just want to say, like, how in the world have you shown me that Scripture is the authority, that God is the authority based upon the assumption that you are the authority or that I am the authority? It doesn't make a lot of sense um, to me. Oh, what was the other thing I wanted to address with what he said there? Uh, we've we've gone on now and I have forgotten what the other point was. Um what did he bring up at the end there? He brought up that evidentialist claim, and then there was one other thing. Oh, I, I lost one minute to play it again. Sure. If you can get to the very end, uh, my, I'm sorry. I'm getting old. So yeah, it's I, all right. I'm getting old. I too. blank on some things. Okay. Crazy smart guys like Chris Bowl and James Anderson and Greg Wells. I didn't want you to just play that over again. They don't know the philosophy. They don't, they're not familiar with these kinds of philosophy. That's what it was. Yeah. 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 So his objection here. His objection is that, you know, the reason that this is such a successful program and it's so popular is because you're, you're catching people unawares, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that may be true in part, right? Like sure. somebody asked the other day, what's the greatest uh, Christian debate you've ever heard? And I said, it, it's got to be Greg Bonson and Gordon Stein. I mean, that debate is just fun to listen to. Sure. Uh, but it's very clear that Stein was not prepared. He didn't know what in the world had hit him. And, you know, Bonson just... Bonson clearly won that debate, but then well, the even, question even from his even from Dr. Stein's criticisms of the the traditional theistic arguments. If I was a classical apologist, sure, they though his critiques of those arguments weren't good either. So yeah, no, I agree with that. Everyone could have fun with that debate, regardless of wh- which angle you're coming from. Absolutely, absolutely, and supposedly he became the man that atheists most feared, or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, you know. Did he catch them flat-footed? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, can presuppositionalists catch unbelievers flat-footed? Yes. Uh, can presuppositionalism in particular do that? Maybe. But I think that this is an objection, if it is an objection. I think it's an objection that applies to every methodology. Sure. And so I don't know why we should say that it's specific to presuppositionalism. Right. The Kalam right? could catch someone off guard if you don't That's know right. the ins and outs of, say, Big Bang cosmology, so a scientific defense of the second premise. I mean, it, what can throw someone off, if, if you're ignorant of something, sure. Any any piece of information that you're ignorant of is going to throw you off if you don't have an answer to it. So Yeah. So yeah. I, I think this cuts both ways. I mean, I don't I don't think yeah. that it, you know, overrides. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that it only applies to presuppositionalism is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Um, so... Now, I do think I understand what he's saying in the sense of, hey, I'm David Paulman. I'm conversant with classical foundationalism and direct acquaintance. I'm going to offer this for you, sure. uh, which I, I understand that and I respect that. Um, but the atheist is free to do that as well. Sure. Right. So, um, yeah. So. All right. Well, that was excellent. Again, I do. And, and I don't I'm not just saying this because uh, Chris is a friend and he's been on the show a bunch of times and. You know, um, he came on now and put all this, you know, thought into this. I'm not just saying this for that reason. I'm genuinely encouraging you to go over to Revelationary Apologetics and subscribe. His little half hour critique of Paulman's um, arguments 
Um, and it's just a part one of a three part series. He, you go into much more depth. Now it's not, it's not easy listening. You got to pay attention, but there's a lot of good stuff there um, uh, for folks to, to give a, to give a listen. And of course your other discussions, um, as well, um, have been excellent. So definitely, uh, subscribe to his, to his channel. Um, are there any last comments you'd like to say before we take some questions, uh, Chris? Yeah, there is. And especially because, uh, I doubt whether we're going to pick this up again and do more with this debate. I'm going to be quite busy for the next month. So, um, I just wanted to say that, you know, eventually what, what Paulman gets to is offering on the basis of this subjective direct acquaintance, the account of direct acquaintance, he gets to deduction and then induction. And then let's work out from there to confirmation theory to try to prove that there's an external world. And we, he goes with the simplest of the theories or so he mm -hmm. says to say that there's an external world. And then he wants to, to uh, debate on that basis to try to convince the unbeliever. But what I want to say is, uh, three things. First of all, um, that's a lot of that's a lot of work, right? Based mm -hmm. upon things that at each step have been questionable uh, at best, right? Um, but the other thing I want to say is, what, what's the what was the debate proposition? Uh, is human reasoning autonomous? Is human reasoning al autonomous? And so David takes the affirmative there, and the entire program is subjective. It's based on his accounting of direct acquaintance. Mm -hmm. And so I don't understand how he's proven uh, anything with regard to the debate proposition there. Sure. Uh, I could even grant, perhaps, I'm not saying this, but I could grant that he outperformed his opponent, but I still don't see that he actually substantiated what he needed to in order to uh, affirm that resolution. So, uh, so, so if, I, if I were to ask you, okay, now we obviously disagree with David. We don't think he argued his case. Um, so, and there are a lot of holes. But in the debate itself, uh, who do you think uh, did better? I think that it was like listening to two different debates. And I don't know Seth, and so I'm not trying to hurt his feelings. He strikes me as the type who would not have his feelings hurt. He like punched me in the <laughs> face instead. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. But uh, Seth is very, very good at explaining the method on an introductory mm -hmm. level and offering. Mm -hmm. Uh, just tons of illustrations and rhetoric and those sorts of things. I think the strongest part of the debate was during the crossfire section when he's questioning David on logic. I think he was going to the right spot right there. Mm -hmm. um, I think that Paulman probably slightly outperformed Seth. Uh, one of the reasons, though, is, again, it was like listening to two different debates. You sure. had Seth offering kind of this one thing with the just the richness of the presuppositional method. And then Paulman is zeroing in on one issue philosophically. And it's clear that he wants to talk philosophy. And, and I don't know that Seth was really wanting to go down all those roads. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, I, I, that's kind of my, my takeaway from it. I think that both guys did a great job. Uh, hey, great. I haven't so, had a debate you're so in Christian. Years. But in the no, end, I haven't had a debate in years. I'm, and they did I'm, great I'm old and washed up and retired <laughs> and stuff. So like, I'm not going to like talk smack about the guys who are actually doing it. And I think that the things that they brought up, I mean, it, it brought up this discussion, right? And sure. uh, it, it's good for sharpening one another. Uh, I think that Paulman is pretty clear that these discussions are in-house debates and they're sharp. Yeah. We're sharpening one another. Yes, um, so the last thing I would say then with regard to all of that is, you know, what do we get in Romans one? We're told that the unbeliever 
has no apologetic, has no defense, has no excuse. So if there's a possibility that the external world doesn't exist, whereupon we base other Christian claims, if there's a possibility, you know, that the law of non-contradiction is false or something. By the way, I, I don't think that God can know a true contradiction. And so I reject uh, those views of paraconsistent logics and that sort of thing. Okay. I think they're interesting. Um, but yeah, uh, so, that's a presuppositional response to that from my worldview. Um, but at the end of the day, if you're talking about possibility and probability, no matter how much probability you get with regard to a classical or evidentialist case for the existence of God, you've not removed every excuse from the unbeliever. And that's what the Bible tells us we can have. You know, there's the certainty of the faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead for our sins. That's proclaimed, right? In the book of Acts, it's there. Uh, we have at least, uh, at least psychological uh, certainty, but I think scripture is speaking of far more there. It's not just pragmatic. It's speaking of uh, at least uh, epistemic maximal <laughs> maximalism mm -hmm. there, right? Maximal epistemic certainty, whatever that might mean. But I, I think that it's even maybe talking about epistemic certainty with regard to what we would think are contingent uh, facts. But setting that aside, let's say you reject that argument. Romans 1, there's no excuse. And if you're saying that it's more probable that, say, God exists than that he does not, what you're saying there is there's still some probability that God does not exist. And this is exactly what a guy like, say, Christopher Hitchens took advantage of in his debate with William Lane Craig. Hey. You can prove these things are probable all day long. I'm a skeptic. That's what I'm saying. I don't have a reason to believe this for sure. So there you go. All right. Thank you for that. Well, we just have a few questions here. There's a, a lot of information that we went through and you definitely, well, you went through and you went into some detail. So perhaps um, <clears throat> it didn't produce as, as many questions there, but that that's fine. Um, let's get to JD's, uh, JD Free's uh, super chat. Thanks again for the super chat. I appreciate it. Uh, he says, my understanding is that strong precept, <laughs> strong precept as opposed to weak precept, precept light. Uh, so I think he's he's suggesting somewhere along the lines of Van Til himself and Bonson. I tend to think of Bonson, for example, as kind of the more, more purest manifestation of the presuppositional yeah. approach. Okay. So my understanding is that the strong precept holds that the exact Christian worldview is a precondition of intelligibility. Does this imply one must have perfect theology in order to have intelligibility? Um, yes and no, right? Okay. So, so yes, in the sense of we're not going to have perfect knowledge this side of heaven, are we? Right. Um, whatever that might look like in the end anyway. I, I happen to believe there are many things we'll never know uh, in virtue of our finitude, not sure. because of our sinfulness or whatever. Uh, so we're never going to comprehend the Trinity. Uh, we're never going to comprehend things like that fully because God is inexhaustible. You know, he's infinite. Uh, so, in, is, so when I think of the depths of the Trinity, I end up like, I'm like this, I'm like so confused. So that in <laughs> heaven, when my vision is perfect, I'm just going to be like this because still in heaven, I won't fully understand it. <laughs> is that what you're telling me? I won't, I won't have full knowledge of these things one day? You, you know, what's amazing is in the beatific vision in, in eternity and in, in the uh, the new heavens and the new earth, we can continue to to know God and come to know him more and more and we will never know him fully. He's mm. inexhaustible. And so for eternity, 
will be coming to know God and never know him fully uh, as he knows himself, which is see, a- that's awesome. That's not that's not depressing or sad. That's awesome because we're, <laughs> there's always more to know and enjoy about him. I think that's awesome. But but in answer to the, the person's question, no, it doesn't require perfect theology. I would also say that, um, you know, there's a sense in which there's a lot of fuzziness around the edges. This is mm-hmm. something that Bonson himself, who was very purist, uh, that Bonson himself conceded. You know, when we're looking at various issues, you know, we're, we're not always confident or sure about every single thing. But what we sure. are saying is, at the end of the day, we're still resting upon the Christian worldview in order to address those issues. That's right. All right. Thank you for that. Um, let's see here. There was a question here. The Sire. I love <laughs> I love the name. This The Sire. What do you think of Quine's critique of the analytic synthetic distinction? Does it only affect metaphysical conception of analyticity and leave epistemic analyticity untouched? Yeah. So what's going on there um, is that he's picking up on uh, one of Bonson's traditional responses to the so-called analytic synthetic distinction, uh, which much of it was in virtue of Quine. Now, when Bonson is writing his earlier work, which is later published as presuppositionalism stated and defended. And by the way, for the listeners who don't know, that was like found behind a filing cabinet in his old office or something when his right. mother cleaned it out. So yeah, it's not don't get like, upset that it doesn't cover some topic you wish it covered. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. it was put together so after he died. You can barely, very clearly see that Bonson is learning these things, uh, you know, in a student like way. And so he is relying a great deal upon Quine uh, in that book, as I recall. He brings up a lot uh, with regard to, to Quine, uh, Quine's understanding of meaning and uh, metaphysical versus analytic, the analytic synthetic distinction, all the things that uh, he brings up in that question there. But what I would say is, is this. Um, Quine's critique, I think, still applies in a number of different areas with regard to the issue of recognizing uh, analytic statements or analyticity. Um, And then I think also, to go a little bit further than that, Bonson's criticism of analyticity is much broader than Quine. And uh, I'm not going to get into much more depth than that. Uh, I know that this person wants me to do that, <laughs> but but I am going to pretty frankly dodge uh, the rest of that at the moment because that's, Lord willing, the next part of my uh, my critique of of David Paulman's uh, other video that he made against. Well, I'm definitely definitely looking forward to that. But Standing the, for truth- the long and short of that, at, at the end of the day, on that question, I just want to say that no, deflecting to well, we just reject what Quine said about meaning. I don't think that's going to work to save us here. Okay. All right. Thank you. Standing for Truth uh, gave a $5 super chat. Thank you so much. Keep up the great work, brother, uh, at Revealed Apologetics. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I will try my best to keep up the great work. <laughs> so um, let's see here. That's an interesting. Uh, J.D. Free says, I would love to hear a conversation between Bolt or another good presuppositionalist and Timothy McGrew or Jonathan McClatchley, <laughs> uh, perhaps with James Anderson as well. Uh, kind of a dream team uh, discussion. I, you know, to be perfectly honest, I'm not a big fan of the twos on twos and the the team debate sort of thing. So, for example, um, I don't remember the name of the YouTube channel, but when they had that discussion, I'm sure you're familiar with it on apologetic methodology, where James White was there. Uh, as it was, it Randall Rouser. Mm-hmm. Randall Rouser, Jonathan McClatchley, uh, Dr. Richard Howe. Uh, that was a great discussion, but there was 
I mean, it was it was dangling meat in front of you. So like when something got really good, you had to move on. Um, and so you really can't focus in on the issues in a, in a meaningful way when there's, you know, that much going on. But Every, um, everybody wanted a piece of Dr. White in that debate, too. That was, was like that was interesting, wasn't it? That was so <laughs> there seemed to be this weird. Um, it was respectful, though, like it was it was actually showing respect. It was interesting. Right. Yeah, that was very interesting. Uh, at any rate, uh, let's see here if we have any more. But I, I'm game for that. If you ever put me on with Timothy McGrew, though, or uh, or, Mc, or even Dr. McClatchy, you better get James Anderson on with me. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, may, maybe I could arrange something. That'd be cool. I, I don't I don't have access to Timothy McGrew. Maybe I do. I think we have had a, a brief correspondence, but I definitely have access somewhat Um to Jonathan McClatchley, uh, he he uh, he made a comment that that he didn't like the fact that I was sharing my videos on on his uh, Facebook page because he thinks it was pretty. He, he could, his love for presuppositionalism was coming through, um, and so I, I respectfully make sure I, I don't do that. I, by the way, I, I very much appreciate Jonathan McClatchley. I think um, yeah. he's got some. I think he's a great though. evidentialist. I really do. And Excellent evidentialist. Sure. I agree. I have great respect for both those individuals. Um, here, let's see here. I think that is it with the questions. Well, uh, Chris, thank you so much. And, uh, why don't you, why don't you show folks what's behind you there? Uh, your book <laughs> is on oh. induction, isn't it? Or, uh, it, 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 it is. It, yeah. So the, the world in his hand, a Christian account of scientific law and its antithetical competitors. Um, if you have enjoyed, uh, Chris Bolt and you want to see what he has to say with respect to the whole uniformity of nature thing, totally buy his book. It's available in soft cover, hard cover. Am I correct? Hard cover it's available too? in, that was a hard cover. There's a soft cover. There's Kindle now. And Kindle yeah. now. That's right. So, uh, go and buy a book. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> worth your time. So, all right. Well, that's it for this episode. Everyone who was listening, thank you so much. I really do appreciate and I appreciate the respectful comments and, and interaction there as well. So until tomorrow, um, I will be having, uh, I think I'll be having, <laughs> that's an awesome mug. You see, look, what, what is this? What is, what, what do I have here? Come on. I'm supposed to be Mr. Priestup. I got a cardinal on my cup. <laughs> Whatever, man. Um, but uh, tomorrow I'm going to be interviewing Scarlett Clay. Um, who um, actually has a very interesting story. She wrote an article about her experience in Biola um, in their apologetics program. And she's going to share with, with us how taking apologetics at Biola actually made her a presuppositionalist, which is interesting because Biola is definitely a more classical and evidential, uh, evidentially oriented uh, school there. So um, that will be tomorrow uh, at 9 p.m. So looking forward for folks to listen in on that conversation. I think it'll be fun. Well, thanks again, Chris, and um, looking forward to doing more with you in the future. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Eli. All right. That's it for this episode, guys. Take care. God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.